listening to a Rhythms podcast. I'm Brian Wise, editor of the magazine, and with me on Zoom, senior contributing editor Stuart Coop. How are you going this week, Stuart? I am good, Brian, except for the news that's come through that uh, New South Wales or Sydney is going to be locked down for at least another month, and uh, people are predicting it'll be until the the end of the year. So um, aside from that, I'm I'm doing okay. I got plenty of time to listen to music and plenty of time to read. It's it's a nightmare apart from that, and we we have been reading a lot, and we're going to be talking in a minute in a few minutes to Barry Devola. But first. Um, I completely missed Record Store Day. Well, when I say I missed it, I didn't actually buy anything on Record Store Day because I've been so busy. But I noticed there were a few tasty treats there and uh, you managed to get hold of a few, didn't you? Yes, I did. Look, I, I have um, very mixed feelings about Record Store Day You know, over the last few years. I, I loved the notion when it first uh, came out and uh, and I still like the fact that um, it it does get people to go to uh, record shops and and hopefully spend up big. I mean it's 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 one of the big days of the year for all uh, record shops. Not so much this year for um, for Melbourne shops for the second record store day because uh, they were they were closed. But yeah, record store day in in the time of COVID has been divided into two two drops. And um, look, it you know over the years it has been co-opted by the big labels i mean there was very very little australian music released as part of record store day this year which i you know i find a, a bit um a bit concerning and and certainly a lot of independent labels uh, have trouble getting their vinyl pressed because you know the the world's pressing plants are taken up with manufacturing you know some of the the bigger items the bigger ticket items from the big record labels but look you know i i got you know i'm i'm ju- Judicious is that the word about what I buy? But I um I did happen to uh, to pick up a, a bunch of things. I, I share my shopping around the country to support different um different independent record shops uh, every year. This year, Gravel was my my shopping destination of choice in Melbourne. Uh, and so I, I look, I picked up the uh, the last two Steely Dan albums, which had never actually been issued on vinyl. And I I picked up a terrific album of Candy Statton's extra songs recorded at, at fame studios which i was happy about but the most intriguing thing i got was the the alternate deja vu brian so crosby stills nash and young's well first album with young and and second album for crosby stills and nash together and, and it's it's a complete recreation of the original deja vu which if you like me you've played and played and played and maybe did you buy the box set that came out recently which was all the the five cds worth of outtakes and extra songs and things did you get that i did buy the box set but now now you're telling me i have to go and buy something else well it's it's a vinyl only release i'm I'm pretty sure that all of the songs are are taken from that box set but some some bright spark has decided well we're going to for record store day they did twenty thousand copies we're going to do exactly a recreation of of that album but with alternate versions of the song so it plays in the same order there are exactly the same number of songs as on the original deja vu the cover mimics the original uh, with the gatefold sleeve but all of the photos are just slightly different from the ones that were on the original so it's 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 look it's curious if you have the uh the box set you probably don't need it and i must admit that um 
it's a, it's a little disarming to listen to. It's it's a bit disorientating mm-hmm. because we know the original so well, and and so then suddenly to be confronted with something that sounds almost like the original but not the original it's a it's 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 like if i i suppose if someone um assembled you know pet sounds for argument's sake um or sergeant peppers but they made it up entirely of different versions so your brain is kind of going oh this is really kind of interesting but it's not the original you know and so it's it's uh, it makes for for slightly slightly odd listening i think so it's it look it, it's it's a lovely thing it's a lovely object and that is part of the attraction of record store day i guess will i play it a real lot compared to going back to my original copy of deja vu which was of course included as a vinyl um you know repress in that box set that we both have probably not that much you know it's 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 fun to listen to but like with most things um, uh, at record store day it it came with a um a not insubstantial price tag which is the you know so curious if you're a massive rabid crosby stills nash and young fanatic yeah and you've got a spare 60 or 70 bucks hanging around maybe maybe I might have to invest in it. I'm not sure. I'll have to see what the outtakes are. But I do recall seven years ago, just over seven years ago, being in Nashville during Record Store Day and lining up with about 300 other people outside Third Man Records, Jack White's store, and getting the Neil Young album, A Letter Home, which he had recorded in that uh, recording booth in Third Man and uh, on vinyl, of course. And that mm-hmm. seemed to be sort of the cusp of the vinyl revival, which Jack White has been so good at doing in Nashville. And who who would have thought? I think vinyl has outsold CDs over the, the past year or so. Uh, and, and they have picked up a few very nice items. I think uh, a Terraplane Blues by Steve Earle and, a, and, and uh, I think another blues classic on the other side released on vinyl. A few things like that when I've been overseas. So uh, sometimes you can pick up some really interesting items, can't you? You, you can. And, you know, it, um, it often begs the question, why did so many people get rid of their record collections back then? But I mean, you know, back when CDs took over. But I mean, who really would have thought that there was going to be not only a vinyl revival, but such a massive vinyl revival? Uh, so it, it's it's interesting and, and also you know we have to remember that so many albums from you know probably the mid to late 1980s onwards I mean they, they only came out on CD so mm. that's yeah. that's the attraction you know I found for like the two Steely Dan albums you know because I have everything else on vinyl um, but the the last two albums came out during the CD era and and no one no one thought oh we should do you know a run of, of vinyl so um, so look you know all of that stuff is uh, is back you know crate digging and you know getting on your hands and knees and looking through you know records on the floor and in, in in milk crates uh, at record shops uh, well when we can get out and get into record shop but uh, you know look I I I personally love it I I work every day with a turntable uh, about sort of uh, about a f- I'm looking at it now, Brian. It's about a foot away from me, so I, I tend to listen mainly to um, to records, and uh, it's it's uh, enjoyable. I must you mentioned Jack White. I must say that um, outside of Rhythms magazine and uh, those uh, those two English publications, uh, Mojo and Uncut, Jack White is actually responsible for the only other indispensable, I do believe, mm. music magazine. There is Rhythms. There is Mojo and Uncut. 
and maggot there is brain. maggot maggot brain and i i just got my new maggot brain this week and and i i was excited i don't think it's as invigorating as the new rhythms brian um but it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty damn good and uh and i like the fact that it uh it does range over i mean there's there's actually not an incredible amount of music content in maggot brain uh it does range over a lot of art and poetry and graphics and various bits and pieces and and invariably i look at the cover lines and i go never heard of them never heard of them never heard of them never heard of them and then i go, then i go down various rabbit holes for the next um, for the next couple of weeks exploring these esoteric things so um you know obviously good on on rhythms but uh, you know good on jack, good white, on jack white for uh, yeah. doing his bit to keep alive that wonderful thing in the same way as we love we love records and vinyl records i mean of course everyone thought oh you know magazines will will you know slowly disappear and most of them have but most i mean we we both know that there is something completely joyous and wonderful about not looking at the content of a magazine online which a lot of people do but you know actually holding it and taking it on the train and you know, sitting in bed, you know, turning, turning paper pages. It's it's a, it's a, it's it's the uh, it's the reading equivalent to uh, to listening to a vinyl record, if you ask me. Yeah, somebody said to me, "Maggot Brain's a strange title." Well, Maggot Brain, the album celebrating fifty years, the Funkadelic album, but it takes me back to the era. I don't know if you recall, there was an English publication called Bucket Full of Brains about sort of all things. I guess you call it Americana now, but more rock and roll magazine is more of a fanzine in fact if i recall correctly i think an interview that i either did with uh, cyril jordan or roy loney of the flaming groovies appeared in bucket full of brains so it, the title takes me back just for that very fact alone Yes, uh, Bucket Full of Brains, yes, was actually put together by a, a friend of mine who I haven't seen for, for many years. I used to see him every year at, uh, at South by Southwest in Austin, but uh, Nick West from England, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, when it came to all things uh, Flaming Groovies, Cyril Jordan, Chris Wilson, and then, you know, anything to do with the Long Riders, yeah. uh, Green on Red, I could almost name you if you gave me another couple of minutes, all of, all of Nick West's obsessions and fascinations and I happened to to share the majority of them with him. And uh, no, he kept that magazine going. I don't know if it's still going. I don't think so. I wouldn't be uh, surprised. It's some form of... Hey, speaking of uh, musically nerdy things, Barry Duvall is uh, on, waiting to come in and join us. Shall we let him in? Why not? Oh, I don't know. Barry, how are you? Barry, of course, is the author of the recently published book, Driving Stevie fracasso and we're going to talk to him about that how are you brian hey coop how are you doing i'm good thank you davola how are you uh, not too bad how are you coping over there yeah, we, 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 the word is now from Norman Swan that uh, that Sydney might be locked down till Christmas. Barry, you're in Perth where there, I don't think there is a lockdown. Have you actually had a lockdown there in the last two years? We have actually. Well, at the beginning, I guess we all did. But yeah. then we had one probably about a month ago, but it was a four-dayer. But as you probably know, Mark McGowan's pretty tough and he's just he just cracks down really hard and honestly brian it's like this is the thing i can't understand about the new south wales government we got out of lockdown after that four days and we still had to wear masks outside for another week almost and the fact that you don't have to wear masks in sydney just and i'm guessing you're the same in melbourne right you had to wear masks yeah yeah we still have to wear masks yeah 
Yeah, this is the thing I don't get. It's like, you know, okay, trying to convince everyone to get vaccinations is one thing. That's a huge hurdle. But wearing a freaking mask, it's like, I don't get why they don't just mandate it. I really don't understand that. Yeah, well, I notice in America there, some of the states are going back to mandating masks because they've had this huge outbreak again, you know. So it's something that looks like it's unfortunately going to be with us for for a while isn't it and particularly affecting new south wales which is going to be interesting for some of the festivals coming up stuart uh look indeed i um i would be very nervous if i was uh the promoter of you know events like dashville skyline which comes up in october uh and of course byron bay you know the blues fest and then i was i was joking with uh with brian taranto yesterday about the uh the forthcoming out on the weekend festival in melbourne which i'm going to be working on and of course he he promotes and i said what a what an amazing irony it would be if it went ahead in melbourne um bt and you and i couldn't go (laughs) which is which is a very distinct uh possibility that uh that the promoter and one of his two publicists will end up watching the event via zoom or something i can tell you the best chance of that being cancelled coop and that would be if i booked a ticket today (laughs) Uh, in fact yes given your 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 track record traveling around the country to promote your rather excellent book uh barry that that is in fact the case but look I, i was talking with brian before we were we we're having a little natter about you know of course the vinyl revival but um but we were given that um music nerdism runs uh, runs strongly through your your novel did did you um did you embrace record store day this year did you find yourself dash or are you are you a vinyl person and did you go out and buy anything uh, in particular for record store day i gotta say no i didn't and <laughs> Getting back to the vinyl thing, yes, I'm I'm looking behind me in my office now, and I have a, a you know a corner full of vinyl. But Coop, it's like just a drop in the ocean compared to what I know your collection is like. <laughs> so no, I'm not a huge collector, but I'm very very protective of what I have, and I barely ever have. I know lots of people buy and sell stuff. I tend to just hold on to what I've got, no matter how embarrassing it is. I have kept my Rick Wakeman and Supertramp records from being a younger, more foolish lad before I discovered Elvis Costello and uh, the jam and XTC and all the cool things that I ended up getting into. But um, yeah, I'm not so much a collector. And I know you were talking about this the other day about 78 collectors, right? Who um, are sort of fetishistic about things and keep things in pristine condition and don't want to play them. I'm not that guy. I know you aren't either. It's meant to be listened to, right? That's the whole that's, that's why we. That's. I mean, I I get on my little high horse when people. I mean, I love vinyl, but I love CDs um, too. And I probably, if I drove and had something to play them on, I'd probably love eight tracks. But um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's it's about listening to music. And I, I, I hardly ever will buy something on vinyl if I already have it on CD or on CD if I have it on vinyl. I mean, I just want to have the, the music 
to listen to. And yes, people would buy two and three copies of things, you know, one to put away, one to play, and maybe one to sell in the future. I, I don't get that at all. The moment I get a record home or it arrives in the mail, it is straight on the turntable. Hey, uh, we could have a, we could do a whole discussion on whether vinyl sounds better than CDs, but we better not go go into that at the moment. That would be dangerous territory, Brian. <laughs> I know. Well, we'll agree. Well, let's talk about the the book, Barry. You know, there are there are a lot of music books, a lot of music memoirs, a lot of music biographies, but yours is a music novel, and it doesn't always work combining the music theme with novels, does it? I mean, you probably noticed that your yourself, but yours, highly acclaimed, I might add, uh, seems to be able to pull that off. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Brian. Tell more people, about 10,000 more, if you like. Okay, yes. <laughs> Happy to shift a few more copies. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, there's that famous that famous saying, well, it's been attributed to everyone from Frank Sinatra to Elvis Costello to Brian Eno, but I think it was Martin Mull that actually said it, that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And there's kind of two ways to look at that. It's like, is there any point writing about music? And also, it's really difficult thing to do just to write about music and express what it's like to make music or to listen to music or to record music. And when you're writing a novel, I think it's an extra layer because you're trying to convince people that this fictional band you're writing about is real and these characters you're writing about are real people, even though it's a novel. So yeah, I I sort of came up with this idea about uh, two brothers and um, they haven't seen each other for 30 years. They're estranged, but they find themselves thrown together in a Dolan 1985 Nissan stanza driving from Austin, Texas to New York City in the days leading up to 9-11. And one of the brothers is a jaded New York music journalist who's just lost uh, his job. He's just lost his girlfriend and he's just lost his apartment, which, you know, is the worst thing a New York person can do, lose their apartment. And He's thrown this lifeline to write, write a book about Stevie Fracasso, who is uh, the former frontman in a 1970s band called Driven to Distraction, who were sort of set to be a bit of a thing, and then they blew their chances spectacularly at this showcase gig in 1980, and it derailed his career and derailed his life. And Stevie and Rick are these two brothers who are sort of trying to sort out their lives and what blew their family apart 30 years before and what their future might hold for them on this car trip. And they drive from Austin, Texas to New Orleans, uh, up Highway 61, through Clarksdale, Mississippi, Memphis, Nashville, up to Knoxville, then Philadelphia, and finally into New York City. So the book's written to a soundtrack. There's a soundtrack on Spotify that I can I can send to you so you can maybe put up for right. listeners to the podcast, can, can hear the songs that inspired the book and the songs that are in the book. Look, reading it, uh, it sounds to me you write about New York City so vividly. Did you actually live there for a while? How, it's, it reads as if you must have. Well, I'm glad it reads like I've lived there because <laughs> I've ne- I never have. But as Coop would know, it's it's 
my favorite city in the world and it's probably one of my favorite things in the world outside of my wife and children and my Fender Jazzmaster guitar and my Vox amp. But uh, I go there every year. I've been there every year since 1991, COVID years accepted, of course. And yeah, I go there usually around September, October. And I used to go for a month or so. Now that I've got a family, I go for about a week. And uh, yeah, I just love the city. I write about it for the Sydney Morning Herald a lot and for Qantas magazine and for a few other papers. And I write travel stories and I write music stories and I write stories just about the city itself and the neighbourhoods and the people that inhabit them. One of my favourite stories I wrote was about tracking down all the places in New York that have been photographed on famous album Mm. covers. So everything from um, obviously Bob Dylan, the freewheeling Bob Dylan with him walking down the street with Suze Rotolo in uh, in the West Village, to the Beastie Boys down the Lower East Side, the cover of Paul's Boutique, to the Doors, Strange Days, every album cover you can think of that's, uh, that was on a, new, a cover of uh, that celebrates New York. I tracked them all down and told the story of them and that was that was great fun. So yeah, they're the type of things I love doing, combining things that I'm obsessed with, with uh, New York City and just writing about them and interviewing people in stores, uh, famous people there, just regular people there. I just love writing about the place. So yeah, it informed the story a lot. And I always knew I wanted to base this book somehow around New York City and also around 9-11, because like I said, I usually go in September and I went there um, in 2001. I I landed just a week after September 11. And uh, seeing New York at that time was amazing because everyone really wanted to talk and figure out what had happened and what might happen because obviously talk of war was in the air. Yeah. And I think it just opened up New Yorkers a lot. It kind of softened that hard shell and everyone wanted to talk uh, and every bar you'd go to, you just strike up these conversations with people. And uh, I really wanted to write about that time and what it felt like to be in New York then. And so that's why the book sort of culminates with 9-11. There's a great description in there before, I, before I, Stuart, uh, I'll invite you to ask a question, obviously, but there's a great description of you just walking around New York and just enjoying watching what's going on. I reckon that's a great way to be a tourist, not necessarily having to go to all the tourist attractions, but just seeing how a city sort of lives, you know, just seeing the life of a city. Yeah, that's true. I've always said that, you know, people sometimes ask me because I go so often, can you send me a whole lot of tips of great places Mm. to go? And and I, I do send them a whole list of stuff, um, you know, tailored to who they are and what they're interested in. But at the end, I always say, walk out of wherever you're staying, turn left or right and just walk and just stop at interesting places you find. Because New York's that kind of place. And Coop knows this because he's been probably more times than I have. But you really don't need a plan. You just need to walk around and be open to stuff. And the great thing about New York City and, you know, everyone's written about this from, from Joan Didion to everyone, but it's got this magic about it that everyone feels like it's their city that goes there. And it's the same city. It's quite small when you look at it. It's just this little sliver of an island hanging off the East Coast. But for some reason, the mythology behind it 
and the fact that so many people move there to either run away from something or to discover themselves or to recreate themselves, I think just makes it this electric place that you can never get enough of and you just keep going back to it. Um, I remember after about my 10th time there, my dad said, there are other cities you could go to, you know, Barry. You know, why do you keep going back there? And uh, I just said, look, it's always a new city. Every time you go back there, there's always new things to find. It's inexhaustible. And that's why I keep going back. Yes, I, I think I, I'm up to visit number 44 or something, Barry. And uh, and I, I people go, God, you must travel a lot. And I go, well, I sort of do, but I ha really haven't been anywhere else much. Um, you know, I divide my time between Sydney, Melbourne, Launceston and New York. Um, <laughs> there's a T-shirt waiting to happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I, I, I love the fact that you talk about your wife and your children and your guitars. But of course, when it came to dedication, the dedication for your first, for your novel, of course, is dedicated to New York City. Um, yes, an interesting discussion with my wife after she found out that was the case, actually. <laughs> so after, after, you know, I mean, you, you've written fiction before, but, uh, you know, after so much predominantly journalism, was it difficult to, to you know, apply yourself to the... The, the long form of, of writing a novel, you know, um, you know was, was a different discipline for you? It was in many ways, Stuart. Um, and yeah, like you said, I've done, I've written, this is actually my ninth book, but it's my first novel. I wrote a book yeah. of short fiction called 1970 something, um, but this is the first novel I've written. And yes, it it's definitely a different discipline trying to get your head around a whole story for 90,000 words and making it flow. And, you know, 10 drafts later, it kind of hopefully does flow now. But at the beginning, you're sort of just writing episodes and writing scenes and writing characters and thinking, who are these people? Where are they going to go? Who are they going to meet? What's their journey going to be like? Part of it, people often talk about a roadmap when they're writing a novel. And for me, I had this physical roadmap. In fact, I'm looking at it right now because I've still got it on my wall, a map of the US with the trip that Rick and Stevie take. And that really helped because I had this, this route that they took and I thought, okay, well, they've got to be in Clarksdale by this date. What's their relationship going to be that like at that point? Who are they going to meet in Clarksdale? What state of mind is Stevie going to be in at this point? So, yeah, it was really good to have that roadmap to help me tell the story. The other thing is getting back to journalism because that helped me in many ways because... As you would both know, when you're writing a story, you, you've got a lead and a kicker, which for people that don't know, a lead is your opening to your story and your kicker is the ending of your story. And leads and kickers are things that are drummed into us. Like, you know, you've buried your lead. Mm. You, the lead of this story is actually four paragraphs in. Bring it up. Cut everything else that came before it. And similarly, kickers, the endings have to be something that doesn't exactly tie it in a bow, but it has to let people know the story's ended. It can be circular, it can refer to something earlier. And I took that when I was writing the book for each chapter, actually. I, I thought I have to open really strongly and I have to end strongly, but it has to link up to the next chapter. And I, they were just things I've learned over the many years I've been a journalist that I think helped with writing the book and structuring it in a way that really 
hopefully grabbed people and made them want to keep going chapter to chapter to find out what happens. You also felt, I think, compelled to mention some of your favourite bands of all time in there, didn't you? I did. Well spotted, Brian. <laughs> yeah, we um, don't, it wasn't hard. Yeah, a few of, because Rick is a music journalist, I mean, he's not exactly like me, that's for sure. He's, um, I gave him, in fact, some people have said, man, it took me five chapters to stop hating the guy, which uh, I don't think I'm that hateable a guy. I think most people would say I'm fairly likable. But Rick definitely went on a bit of a journey. But a lot of his music taste and a lot of his theories about music are some of mine as well. And the bands you're referring to, I mean, are bands that I felt were classic bands that for some reason were never commercially successful, whether it was bad luck or mental illness or shocking management or record company problems or you know, drugs and eventually death, you know, some of them died. So I'm talking about Badfinger, who are probably the classic case mm. of what I consider one of my favourite bands in the world, who were destined to be the next Beatles, signed to the Apple label, and um, half that band hung themselves, mm. literally, because of the terrible situation they had with the worst manager on earth. Um, Big Star, obviously, I mentioned in there, who are, you know, I think one of the most influential bands that most people wouldn't even know who they were, apart from, you know, you two and other people of our ilk. Um, And yeah, the bands like that, I really, um, really wanted to sort of give a bit of a shout out to. And also when I was writing Stevie, I was thinking Stevie's, some people have asked me, is Stevie based on a actual rock star or an actual singer and he's not but I was thinking of these types of bands and I was listening to a lot of that music while I was writing it so I was thinking of Alex Chilton and I was thinking of Paul Westerberg from The Replacement Stuart Coop um, very nicely gave me a wonderful cover quote for for the book Mm. which I'll let him say now no, but, well, I, I did. Uh, yes, I picked up the replacements um, <laughs> reference and um, and the Westerberg one. A, is there a bit of Rocky Erickson in there too? There's a lot of Rocky Erickson in there. Yeah, in fact, so. I wrote a long time for Rolling Stone magazine before they folded, owing me $2,800, which I'd like to get back. And I interviewed Rocky Erickson for a story. And the same year, I interviewed Jeremy Oxley from the Sunny Boys. And both those stories really affected me because... I also interviewed their brothers, Sumner Erickson, who plays in a symphony orchestra, and Peter Oxley, who's obviously Jeremy's brother and is the bass player in the Sunny Boys. And because it was, I interviewed both Rocky and Peter, and sorry, Rocky and Jeremy, but obviously it's a bit difficult to get straight answers out of them and for them to concentrate for long periods of time. And I ended up interviewing the brothers and the brothers were the story because both those brothers pretty much were major influences in getting both those guys through basically madness since they were both mentally ill and just hearing the stories of both Peter and Sumner and what they went through and the fierce love that they had for their brothers even though it was just just a horrible situation in both cases, was kind of really inspiring and it helped. I'd already started writing this book about a brother and his his rock star brother 
And it just helped really give me an extra spark for this story, even though the story of, of Rick and Stevie is not the story of either of those sets of brothers. It helped me ground it a lot and helped me give an idea of, of what the stakes were with their relationship and how they might navigate it. Has the novel been published overseas, Barry? It hasn't, but if anyone's listening that knows a publisher in the US, get in touch. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think this is it's the whole story set in the US and the US characters, and it's such a US story. Yeah. There's so much New York in it, and there's so much US road trip in it that I think it's perfectly suited for the US market. So I'd really, it's only been out four and a half months here in Australia and in New Zealand, but I would dearly love for it to come out in the US because I think US readers would really connect with it quite well. So fingers crossed and here's hoping that it does. So Barry, the last record that um, that turned your world around, anything that's, that springs to mind, anything that, that, um, that was yeah. life-changing life for you? Bit of a bizarre one, Stuart, but um, I found this band called Sakuran Zensen, uh, which I'm pretty sure is spelt S-A-K-U-R-E-N-Z-E-N-S-E-N. Apologies if I've mis misspelt that. Uh, do you, either of you guys ever heard of them? No. I, I'm going to say, look, I've got everything they ever recorded, uh, Barry, but... Um... <laughs> And I'm kind of close friends with uh, with a couple of the guys, but uh, in fact, no, I've got no idea. And, Thank and you, we like the, we like their first record a lot better, I have to say. But anyway. first, record, first record was killer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really. So these guys are from Tokyo, uh, and they they're 22 years old. They sing in Japanese, so I can't understand a single word they're singing, but I believe every single word of it. They are like a cross between the New York Dolls the strokes and the banana splits. That's the only way I know how to describe it. They're, they're crazy and it's just, they, they make me want to jump up and down. And I'm not the kind of guy that jumps up and down a lot. So uh, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Once again, you don't need a lyric sheet because you won't understand what they're singing, but they're just hyper energetic, kinetic, loud, nuts. And uh, I just love them. And, and Barry, um, you know, in your in your opinion, I mean, is 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 is, la is laundry better than uh, I am secure and zen? I mean, you know, which 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 album do you rate? <laughs> Both of them, excellent <laughs> and nice googling. <laughs> hey Barry, thanks thanks so much for uh, joining us. All the best on uh, the continued success of, of the book. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Coop. Always good to speak to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, Barry. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat with Barry Devola, author of Driving Stevie Fracasso, published by HarperCollins in Australia. And if you want to listen to the playlist that goes along with the book that Barry mentioned, just go to Spotify and you can search for Driving Stevie Fracasso and it will pop up and you'll get a, an extensive music playlist that you can listen to either while you're reading the book or afterwards. Thanks for joining us this week on the Rhythms Podcast. You can find Rhythms Magazine online, rhythms.com.au. There will be details about how you can subscribe. Got some big conversations coming up in the next week or so before I talk again to Stuart Coop. Keep an eye out for interviews with Jackson Brown and Jacob Dillon of The Wallflowers. 